Amen. Isaiah 43, do not fear, Yahweh loves you, part two. As we investigated this thought from last week, the reality that we should be a people who can live a fearless life, a life of spiritual confidence, because Yahweh, the living God, loves us. And in fact, we can say that there is hope because of this covenant-keeping God and a servant who obeys and loves. Well, the servant who obeys and loves isn't the servant Israel, uh, at least not in this time. They have disobeyed, and they're surely not loving God, so they're going to be sent off into exile. But God is saying that I will bring you back. There is a servant, Cyrus, who will obey, but he really doesn't love. He's simply doing the will of God. And then now we're left with only one servant, as we've considered through the book of Isaiah, and that servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. He would obey and he would love. He would love the Father. He would love his own. And we are people who who are called to be servants. We're supposed to obey and to love. Obey the living God. Uh, love our fellow believers, even love our enemies, and surely we are to love God. When we left off last week, we ended on a great and high note, which was we're all called to live for the glory of God. Do we agree with that? We're all called to live for the glory of God. Uh, That is central to the universe itself. God created to be glorified. God saves to be glorified. God allows even difficulty so that he can be glorified. God shapes history so that he can be glorified. And we see in this context that God created Israel, created Judah for his glory. He says that I am your creator. They were formed for his glory. And we notice even last week this word formed is taking us back to the book of Genesis and God formed man and it communicates intimacy and detail and intentionality. And God has called the people of God for his glory. So he calls them to himself and eventually God will call them out of exile back to their land. God is redeemed for his glory. Just another way of saying he is a redeeming God. He is a saving God. Uh, And he has redeemed his people for his own glory. And then they will be returned for the glory of God. Now, uh, just a quick pause because we need to remind ourselves uh, of the definition of the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? And some have thought of it as an attribute of God. It is not. When we think about the glory of God, we're looking at the sum of his perfections. This is why even when... (coughs) Um, Moses asked God, let me see your glory. Then God gave an account of himself and all of his goodness, it says, passed by him. And he said that I'm a God of what? Of loving kindness. I'm a God of justice. I'm a God of kindness, he says. Um, But also I'm a God that will not allow uh, the wicked to go unpunished. This is one aspect of his glory. So when you think about in the human level, people say, uh, well, I want to live to the glory of God, which means I want to live in such a way that God is recognized, his worth is recognized. That's why this word glory, uh, the word means to have weight. And you've probably heard this word before. There's a weightiness to God. And what that's communicating is that him, 
God in his person is worthy of all attention, all praise, all recognition. This is the glory of God, and we live to his glory. It's a great comfort, I think, to know that God will fulfill his purpose to glorify himself. What do I mean by that? If God's purpose ultimately is to glorify himself, God will bring about that result, which means your salvation. If God is saying, I will be glorified as I save people, we can rest assured that we will remain saved. Amen? Nothing will change that. God wants to glorify himself, and God will glorify himself, and God will use every means to do that. Now, at times, God glorifying himself means hardship or difficulty. And as we respond to God properly, then we can glorify God even in the midst of difficulty. God has used difficulty throughout history to reform his people, to purify his people, and even to send his people elsewhere where they may not have gone. This is in part why difficulty comes to the people of God in Jerusalem and other areas because now they're persecuted and they had to be scattered. And as they were scattered, they would take with them the word of God. And sometimes the Lord does this because we can become comfortable in our life and God takes us through some difficulty and that difficulty teaches us various, various lessons. So, um... Let me give you sort of a proposition to the message itself, which is this. There are five qualities, because you remember we talked about the outline, and the outline is this, just to remind you again. The outline is, do not fear, Yahweh has created you, verses 1 and 7. And do not fear, Yahweh shelters you. Don't fear, Yahweh saves you. Don't fear, Yahweh ransoms you. Don't fear, Yahweh loves you. And we talked about the structure um, of the passage itself and these parallel thoughts that are going back and forth between the parallels. And then at the center is this idea of God's love. And so in it, we can say that we see five qualities of our God. Five qualities of our God, and they will overshadow fear. Overshadow fear. It doesn't necessarily mean that the circumstances that create fear are removed, but he will overshadow fear. And and it will guarantee God's redemptive plan. So what's the relevance of that to my life? So that you, all those that hear the word of God, you can live a life of, and we'll say it's, we'll call it spiritual confidence that is grounded in the grace of God. So here God's these five qualities of God and how he operates and how he moves and how he redeems. And then that should create in us a spiritual confidence, but it's grounded in the grace of God. And and it's important that you say grounded in the grace of God uh, because we may have a confidence, but if it's not based in the grace of God, uh, that's a confidence that we stir up in ourselves. That's a human confidence. That's self-confidence. But we don't want self-confidence, do we? Uh, We don't want self-sufficiency. We battle with it all the time. I think we all know that. But nonetheless, we should strive to say, God, help me to have my confidence in you. This idea of doing all things for his glory um, should help us prioritize our life and how we make decisions. And to say that it is not for my glory, it is for God and God's alone. Now, look with me right there in chapter 43. In chapter 43, verses 11 through 13 communicates this thought as well. 
He says, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who is declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God is obviously what is here central. I am acting. I am moving. Nothing can change that. Central to salvation is the glory of God, the person of God. Now, go with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you see this idea again. We must, I like in our souls, deeply embed this thought that everything that God does is for his glory. Some people are confused when they think about salvation. They say, well, salvation, uh, God decided he would save because he saw our pity. And so as he looked on us in our pity, that is the motivating factor for God saving. The motivating factor for God saving is his glory and his glory alone. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 um, tells us it is to what? The praise of his glory, the praise of the grace of his glory. Three times there in Ephesians chapter 1, it is to that praise, even as we just sang earlier, it is to his praise and glory. Salvation is in fact that. And we should be a people who are humbled, realizing that in one sense we're caught up in God glorifying himself in our salvation. No, it is for his glory. Ezekiel 36 Ezekiel 36, notice verse 20. Ezekiel 36, 20. Um, he says, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh. Yet they have come out of his land. What has happened? Aren't they the people of Yahweh? Why aren't they in his land? Isn't he a God that um, could keep his people But then in verse 21, notice he says, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. And it's interesting in verse 21, the Nazbe says, I had concern for my name. And it's literally, I had compassion on my name. Why? That's interesting. Compassion on his name. Because if we understand the word compassion, it is God looking often on people. And he's saying he had compassion for them and he acted. And it's as if God is saying here, I considered my name and it was profane. And what I wanted to do is, no, let me act so that my name is recognized properly. And we have the privilege to live for his name and to be called by his name. Now, isn't that a privilege? Of course it is. And then notice what else he says in verse 22. Therefore, it says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It, no, this is so important. It is not for your sake. O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy, what does he say? Name. Notice verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. And then notice verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then what will I do? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I'll remove the filthiness from all your idols. It is for his name. Consider, if you will, go with me to the book of Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah chapter 10, we see it again, this idea of name. God is going to fulfill his redemptive plan for his people so that his name is glorified. So that the nations can look and see who is a God like the Lord. You remember, even if we, we saw, even last week, there is a great deal of, of Genesis and Exodus language in this passage. And here are these reminders of God, even in the Exodus, because what did God do when he brought the people of God out of, out of Egypt? His name was glorified. His reputation went to the nations. And even when they came into Canaan, it's like the men are trembling because of you. They've heard what your God has done to the Egyptians. God's name was glorified. This is his passion. And we participate with that. Notice Jeremiah 10, verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 to 16. Notice what he says. It is he, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, what did he do? He stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is, he says, Tumult of waters in the heavens. He causes the clouds to ascend to the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from its storehouses. Every man, it says, is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. Doesn't this sound like the language we've been looking at in Isaiah? They're worthless. They're meaningless. They have no breath. And it says, in the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is like these, for the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. It says, Yahweh of hosts is his name. Why are you following idols? You should be following Yahweh, the one who has created all things. So for the glory of his name. So as we said last week, don't fear Yahweh has created you, verses 1 and verses 7. And here's our second consideration, and we're going to get through this this morning, I believe. Do not fear, Yahweh shelters you. Yahweh shelters you. Notice, go back to Isaiah 43 with me. Isaiah 43, what do we see? This sheltering. Verse 2, it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. But then notice in verse 5, it says, what am I going to do? I'm the one that shelters you because I will ultimately deliver you. It says, I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So where is the sheltering, if you will? Um, notice, if, it will, if you will, go back to verse 2. What does he say? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Um, rivers. So he goes from waters to rivers, particular. Then he says, also, you will go through what? The fire, you will not be scorched by the flame. What is this imagery that is happening here? I think overall, it is a sense he's saying, whatever difficulty you go through to the people of God, I am always with you. God will never leave us or do what? Forsake us. Now, in context, I believe what he is saying here 
is the idea that when you're sent off to exile, although that is representing my wrath, it still will not ultimately overpower you. I am with you. And I will surely be with you when I bring you back again. This is the image that he's giving us here. And what's interesting about this idea of walking through water, this takes us back to the Exodus imagery, doesn't it? And the people of God went through the Red Sea, and it says they walked through on what sort of land was it? It was dry land because God was with them. So this would have conjured up images. That's right. Our God is the one who delivered us from the great Egyptians. We have heard these stories. The stories are written. We know about them. However, why are we fearing now? Why would we fear the Babylonians? Because at that time, Egypt was the mighty nation. And now Babylon is the mighty nation. But it really doesn't matter because we serve the mighty God. Amen? So circumstances uh, don't matter at all to the living God. There's no circumstance that can overpower him. There's no circumstance that can thwart his plan. There is no circumstance that can thwart him. Not at all. Nothing can frustrate the living God. So whether it be Egypt or whether it be the Assyrians who have already been destroyed, or whether it be the Babylonians, or whether it be in the future the Persians, or whether it be, as we said before, the Romans, it doesn't matter. And even today we get afraid. You say, well, that's those ancient nations. What about today? Um, There are people that hate us today. I mean, right now, rest assured, someone has lost their life for their faith. Someone has lost their life for their faith in other nations. In a discussion with someone as I'm getting ready to go back to Africa again, and this trip is going to be Kenya and South Africa, and I hope to eventually get to Nigeria. But if you were to look at Nigeria now, essentially northern, southern, it is, it is Islam and it is Christianity. And what is also happening in Islam, there is a flavor of radical Islam that is taking the lives consistently of believers in Nigeria. So the question is, what should we fear? I fear nothing. Why, why would I fear, even in one sense, why would I fear death? Because death is, is death a defeat? What do you say, people of God? No, death is what? Victory. Death is victory. So today, that we have the enemies of God. We go into Asia. China is, in fact, and this is not a political statement. This is a spiritual statement of reality. So don't misunderstand. Okay, I'm not going to pull up a, an American flag behind me and start talking. Okay, you understand that? <laughs> this is just a reality, a spiritual reality of persecution that is happening in China even today. Our brothers and sisters that are persecuted today, that are incarcerated today, that are killed today, and their families disappear today. But who is China? Who are they to the living God? People in Indonesia, who are they to the living God? No. Uh, North Korea? (laughs) The few little missiles that they can barely get into the air? Who are they to the living God? No, no one. Why should you fear? I will shelter you. And then we take this, and I do believe there's a practical application for us today, whatever difficulty 
you go through, God is with you. Because that's simply a universal truth, is it not? It's not as if God is saying, well, I'm only Emmanuel to Judah when they were going through the issues of Babylon. I'm no longer Emmanuel. I'm no longer with you today. There's no relevance of this text for you today. It is. And what is beautiful about this idea, he says, fire and water. Why fire and water? Well, some of it is the imagery of the Red Sea. Some of it has to do with just fire is considered something that would burn and would scorch and harm. So the little idiomatic statement, it's, it's something that's called a merism. Uh, and a merism is the idea that a person is communicating something, so they give you extremes to say it's the extreme and everything in between. Because when we think about water, uh, we think about the opposite being fire. And so he says, whether it be water or fire, whatever difficulty and everything in between, God is with you. So that is the confidence that we can have. And this is why there is no need for you to be fearful, Judah. No need for you to be fearful today. He says, consume you. Go back to the text. Notice what it says. Um... When you pass through the waters, I'm with you. The rivers, they will not overflow you. You'll not be scorched, um, nor will the flame burn you up. It won't consume you. Um, and it's that interesting sort of play on words here. In the Hebrew language, he's playing on the words about passing and consuming. And he's using, the, they sound, there's a very similarity to them when you pronounce them. And he says, it doesn't matter. When you pass through, you won't be consumed. Why? Because I'm with you. Um, think about the idea of water and fire. Um, where might your mind go when you think Old Testament and you think fire and you think someone uh, was being punished by fire and then God was surely with them? The three boys, right? And what happened and who was the one who was overseeing that? Hmm, which leader was that? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of which country or which empire? Babylon. And what happened there? As you know, the story that you learn as a kid. But these stories are so profound when you consider them in light of who God is. So they're cut, cut, um, cast into the fire. And it says it was heated. How many times more? If you remember, seven times more. And it says when they opened it, what happened to those that opened it? They were consumed. From it. So they toss them in, and then what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, he looks, he looks down, and he says, What is this? What is this? Were there not three? And he says, Now I see four. And he says, The fourth is like the son of the gods. And when they were brought out, it says that they didn't even smell like smoke at all. Have you ever barbecued before? <laughs> And you know, you knew I had to go there, right? <laughs> Have you ever barbecued? It's, oh my, I need to change my clothes. Exactly. Let me change clothes. Everyone, you barbecued today, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. I did, and it was good. <clears throat> A little Texas, you know, the whatever. <laughs> they didn't even smell like smoke. So he says, it won't consume you. You won't be scorched by it. It won't overwhelm you. Why? Not because you can generate your own strength, because I am with you. I've been with you then. I'll be with you now. Now, of course, let's be sober about it. 
I, I already told you already that someone has died today for their faith. And these crackpot preachers want to tell you that, no, there's no difficulty in life that's going to come because you're a child of the king. You're a prince of the prince of, of princes. No, no, no. Stephen, great man of God, preaching the word of God. And they took up stones and stoned him. And he looked up. And one of the most beautiful pictures in all of the Bible, he looks up and he says, Oh, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Lord, do not hold this against them. Why, why wasn't he with them? Doesn't it say it won't scorch you and burn you and it won't overwhelm you? He was with him. Because sometimes a sovereign God says, yes, I'm with you. Let's go from life to a moment of death to life. This is what he does. So I'm with you. Um, You see this thought. Look with me at Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Psalm 66, verse 12. It says... You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance because you were with us. Beautiful thought. Look with me, First Peter, because the thought is there in the New Testament. If you will, First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by what? Fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is that theme again. It is to bring praise and honor and glory to Christ. Look with me at the book of Romans. The book of Romans, just um, briefly, Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. Romans eight thirty-one, and what does it tell us here? If God is for us, who is what? Against us. If he didn't spare his own son, but li- delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he would sacrifice his dear son, this makes no sense then. Why would he give his dear son, but then forsake me? Why would he give his dear son, then abandon me? Why would he give his dear son and not give me wisdom and insight and strength to go through difficulty in life? Oh, by no means. He's given that. There's everything else is less. This is where he goes from the greater to the lesser. I'm going to give you all things because I've given you the greatest thing. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemned? Christ is the one who says who's been raised. We've been raised, so there's no condemnation that we have in him. Uh, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sore. No, for your sake. Notice that verse 36. We are being put to death all day long. For your sake, where did we begin? To his name, to his glory. 
What did Ezekiel say? For my name, Jeremiah, my name. But nothing can separate us from this great love. Amen. So we should not fear. Notice what else it communicates. Look, go back with me to, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30, and then verses 10 and 11, it says here, verse 10, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and by no means leave you unpunished. God will keep his promises. There's a regathering of God's people that will happen. Go back to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. I want you to notice notice something. It is important, actually. Verse 2. The first word in verse 2. What does it say? When. 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 It has been said before uh, when it comes to suffering. uh, How are the ways that we can look at suffering? Either you are in it, you've been through it, or you headed towards it. Do we agree with that? Yeah. We don't ever graduate from suffering, do we? No. But God uses suffering. Yeah, we graduate in heaven. Amen for that. But not on this earth. Uh, Face it. It comes with our struggle. So he says, I'm going to gather my people again. Notice in verse 5. I'm going to bring them from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. So the question is, what does that mean? Because some would say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense uh, geographically when it comes to him bringing back the people from Babylon. So it could just be some sense of uh, a hyperbole that says, wherever they're scattered, I will bring them back. Some would take it to mean, no, what he's actually referring to is looking into the future. Because 70 A.D., what happens? The people of God are scattered. 135 A.D., they're scattered. And then what happens in the 20th century? The people of God start to come back to the promised land or to Israel. And they say, well, perhaps that's what he's... uh, Isaiah's looking all the way into the future. I think it's a blending of both. That God is saying, now I'm going to call you back from Babylon. And there will be a day when I'll call all of my people back to this holy land. So don't fear. God has created you. Don't fear. God shelters you. Number three, do not fear. Yahweh saves you. Yahweh saves you. Verse three, notice what it says. Verse three, um, A in Isaiah 43 says, for. So what's interesting here is this change. Um, Before it was. When you pass through, and, but the same small word here that's translated now, for I'm with you. So wh- why will they not overflow you? Why will they not scorch you? Why will they not consume you? For I am with you. That's the cause. 
So before, here is the evidence, you will go through difficulty. Now I'm going to protect it, be protected on what basis for I'm with you. He's making the statement here right in the language itself. For I am, what is he? Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Your Savior. This takes us back when he says, I am Yahweh, your God. Exodus chapter 20. I am Yahweh, your God. And then Yahweh, this takes us back to Exodus again. Exodus 3, Exodus 6. And there in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, Yahweh, I am the great, say it with me. What is he? The great I am. I am that I am. I am a state of eternal existence. There is no changing with me. So go and say that I am has sent you. The covenant keeping God has sent you. And he says as well, I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And this reference to the Holy One of Israel is just a reference that these people should have been living a holy life, but they aren't. This is the call that you'll find in Leviticus, um, Leviticus chapter 11. That the people of God are called to be holy as God is holy, but they weren't. And so now they're sent into exile. But God says, although I'm the Holy One of Israel, I will bring you back. Rest in that. Savior. Uh, Let's look at some references for that. Savior, chapter 45. Savior. He says in 15. 15. Truly, you are... A God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. Verse 21, he says, Declare and send forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh, and there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Savior. 49, he is a Savior. Isaiah 49, and then verses, verse 26. What does he say there? He says, And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. See, here we go again. Here's this theme that God is saying, I do everything so that I will be recognized, so that my glory will be recognized. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as sweet wine. It's another way of saying, I'm going to judge those who have oppressed you, and then everyone will know that he is a savior. So the Babylonians would take them away, and God would say, I'm going to write, I'm going to uh, raise up the Persians, and specifically Cyrus, then everyone's going to know he is a savior, because now they can go back to their land. Safe. Savior, there's so many examples of it, I can't go through them all, of Savior, even in Isaiah. But Savior, we think, a need for help, is it not? If we get back to the basics, I'm in need. Those of you that are hearing my voice right now, that know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been saved because you recognize a need, did you not? You said, Lord, will you save me? I'm a wretched sinner, will you save me? There must be a cry for help. Some years ago, you know, uh, we're at the beach with homeschool sort of day. And um, my youngest son is out there with his buddy from a family that we sort of grew up with. They were only Bobby Scott, the Scott family, only a door between us. And the kids grew up so much together. And he's a preacher as well. And um, we're at the beach. 
and he and his friend are out. And all of us, we kind of went, you know, swimming lessons. Growing up in Florida, you just swam. If you didn't swim and you're from Florida, everyone knew you weren't from Florida. Uh, you're not from around here, are you? And um, so we're at the beach, and they're out there, and I'm saying, okay, be careful. And I'm, I'm on the shore, and I see them going further out. And they're going further out. And I start to walk up. So I start to walk up closer and closer, and I still have my shoes on, my phone's in my pocket, and I'm walking up closer, and I'm thinking, what is going on? And I heard these words. I heard one word, help. Now, what did you think I did? Did, it, did I call for the lifeguard? No, I dove in, literally. I think I barely got my shoes off. No, I didn't. I, t- I took my phone out, I threw it on the sand, and I dove in with my shoes on. There were some, actually some really nice soft leather shoes. No, I'm, I'm not kidding you. They were. I forget the name. They were nice. And notice the tents were nice. I literally dove in, and Joanna remembers this. I dove in, and there I am. I'm, I'm fighting against the waves. Uh, I'm fighting against it, and I'm, I'm looking at the two of them, and I could see the distress in their face. And I get over to Justin, and it was with um, B- William, right? It'd be William, his, his buddy, and I grabbed the both of them like this, and I'm holding them. And then all of a sudden, actually the mom comes and the lifeguard comes and they throw something they can grab on. And I grab Justin and we get back to shore. Because all I heard was help. I didn't need to hear anything else. Help. He is a savior to people who say to him, help. He doesn't save self-sufficient people. He doesn't save self-righteous people. He doesn't save people that think they can conjure up a sense in which they can have victory over life in themselves. He saves people who are wretched sinners. He says, God, will you help me? And I brought him to shore. <laughs> and uh, we talked. And as a good father would do, I made sure he was okay. Then I chastened him a little bit. <laughs> Don't ever do that again. But in one sense, he, it wasn't really his fault. He got carried away. See, unlike here, it, it overwhelmed him. God said, you, you will go through the waters and the rivers, and they will not overwhelm you. Because as you know, there's certain um, currents that can just overtake you. You can go to, to the beach at a certain time. Be careful. And they were being taken away. And I dove in. And every once in a while, I see that picture. It kind of comes through on my, like a reminder on this day. (laughs) And he was only about so big, you know, now or then. (laughs) Yeah, he was only about so big. Savior. Question. This This is the end of all preaching in one sense. Question for you. Is he your Savior? I didn't ask you if you're a member of Grace Community Church. I didn't ask how much Bible knowledge you have. I didn't ask how you can keep yourself unstained from the world. I didn't ask whether or not you see the the moral slide of society. The question is, is he your savior? Many people have been through church many years. 
You've heard him even in a baptistry. I was in church for 10 years, 15 years. I was a member of the church, but not saved. So why should you fear? He's your savior. Cry for help. Number four, do not fear. Yahweh ransoms you. He ransoms you. Go back to 43. What does it say? What is this ransoming? Notice he says in verse three, the second part, I have given Egypt as your ransom cushion, Sheba in your place. Then the latter part of verse four, notice what he says. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. I I would like to develop this more, but let me give you sort of a a succinct understanding of it. He's saying, essentially, uh, I'm willing to give other nations in place of you. We see that's obvious, but he's saying, all of Africa, I'll give it to you. Egypt, and I gave in one point, I gave it to the people of God in years past, because what did he do? He wiped out the Egyptians to save his people. And now I think historically, perhaps what he's saying here is that Cyrus would, in fact, conquer Egypt. And that would be a part of, in one sense, a, a prize for Cyrus as he would do God's will. All these other nations I give you, any people I would give you because you are precious in my sight. Then here's number five. We come to a head because we said this was the center of it all. Uh, do not fear, Yahweh loves you. Go back to verse 4. He says, since, so what he's saying here, why would you give so many people for us? Why would you give up Egypt and Cush and Seba? Because you're precious in my sight. Since you're honored and I love you. That's why. Love. I mean, the love of God is a theme that should resonate in all of our hearts. Each day, even if every day we talked about God's love, we should never grow tired of it. Because how can we fully comprehend or fully grasp his love? The finite mind, which needs renewal, does it not need renewal? Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It needs renewal. It cannot fully grasp God's love, but we strive for it. We try to understand it. And that's why Paul even prayed for the church at Ephesus that they would understand the height and the depth and, and the length of God's love. Grasp it. He loves you. Jeremiah 31, 3 through 10. He loves you with an everlasting love, he says to the people of God. Now, I said to you last week, and sometimes a bit facetiously, I was saying, well, some people say, well, I don't want to teach the love of God. I want to teach things that are much deeper and much more thoughtful and perhaps even complicated for us to grasp. Not something as simple as the love of God. And for people like that, they don't understand the love of God. You don't. That's silliness. It really is. But I want to show you, and I'm going to spend these last moments showing you biblically a picture of the love of God. And also some theological implications of the love of God. It doesn't stand by itself. Let's start here. Genesis and love. Genesis and love. Because here we see uh, the precedent for, for God's love is established in the book of Genesis. It's seen in his creation. Uh, because God created and it was good. We see that he is a God of, of loving kindness and that he has prepared even for 
uh, the people that would fall a way out. There would be a covering for them. We see God's love throughout the patriarchs. We see God's love in deliverance. We also see God's love in this way. The exodus in love. The exodus in love. How do you see the exodus in God's love? Well, because now we see the revelation of the glory of God to Moses. The self-declaration of Yahweh. I am who I am. This is a display of love. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I will be loyal. It is a committed love. I will bring out my people from this mighty Egypt. That's a display of his love. What about Deuteronomy and love? It is throughout the scriptures. We see love in this way. It's God's elective love. And it is not based, and this is God choosing Israel. It is not based on their prominence, but it is based on what? God's divine choice. I love you. Why? Because we're a great nation? No. Because we're a prominent people? No. I love you because it is my own choice. What about the psalmist in love? The psalmist in love. Um, look with me at Psalm 136. Turn with me to Psalm 136. Familiar text. And what does it repeat to us time and time again? Actually, in every refrain, there is what? He is communicating what? For your loving kindness is everlasting. And what does he do? He makes a declaration. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He does great wonders. He is a God of heaven, and he has formed the heavens with skill. He smote the Egyptians, it says. He brought Israel out. He led the people in the wilderness. And then when they come to the wilderness, what does he say? He smote great kings. He gave their land to the people of God. He remembered their lower state. He rescued them, and he gave food to all. He is the God of heaven. And you see, what are these words here? And this is it. For his loving kindness is everlasting. I think you should learn this. This is a great, uh, this is a great phase, phrase. Um, but it's on my ring, and I mentioned it before. You see these very words inscribed. Um, John and I both got these bands done in Jerusalem in the old city. And it was beautiful. said, this is what I would like on it. And she has one as well. So we have on it, Ki le alom hasidik. So you, you remember the word loving kindness? What is that word? Hesed. So we see a form of it there. See, so this at the beginning, key, just saying for. Just like that was the word that we saw in um, Isaiah 43. For I am with you. And then he says now, for it is what? Everlasting, alone. Everlasting, eternal. I think it's something you should learn. And you should say it to yourself, no, for his loving kindness is everlasting. No, ki le'alom hasidi. Yeah, his loving kindness is everlasting, which means it's everlasting through difficulty and heartache and pain. He's with me through it all. So what about the Proverbs in love? Yes, there's love in the Proverbs. Proverbs 3.12. And it says he reproves those he loves and he says he loves those who seek him. And God sometimes takes us through some reproval. He chastens us, but this is out of love. And when we seek him, it's saying that I love you. What about Isaiah in love? We see it right here, don't we? Isaiah right here in 43.4. But it's interesting that in 
63.10, it says of the people of God that they rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. God shows his love consistently. He shows it, but then people rebel. What about Jeremiah and love? The people of God have fallen to these false prophets in chapter 5. And the false prophets say, no, uh, there's peace that's going to come. Jeremiah says, no, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to destroy you. They're, they're given to their idol worship in chapter 8. But God says this in chapter 31, verse 3. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What about Ezekiel and love? Ezekiel and love, we see it there as well. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 59. It's a beautiful picture of God's redemptive love for his people. And what is he saying to his people? I saved you and you grew up among me and you were unfaithful and I punished you. Yet God's love will prevail. It will prevail. What about Hosea and love? Hosea and love, it is throughout the scripture. In Hosea, God is saying to Hosea, despite your harlotry, because we know the picture in Hosea, right? God says to the prophet Hosea, you are to marry a woman of what? Of harlotry. Why? Because my people commit harlotry. And you are to still go out to Gomer and you're to rescue her and seek her out. And so I will seek out the people of God. And especially in chapter 11 of Hosea, it says, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, I love you. What about Luke and love? Luke and love. I was listening to this several times. I was out um, a couple of days ago for a walk and a little run. And I did this morning, but I didn't hear it this morning. And one beautiful picture, Mark 15. Here is Jesus Christ on the cross in Mark's account. And it says those who were crucified with him were assailing him. Were assailing him. Mark 15. Then in Luke's account, we see what happens. One of them says, We are under the same sentence of condemnation and we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus Christ say? Some of the most beautiful words in scripture, is it not? What does he say? Today you shall be with me where? In paradise. And see what we have to do is think Mark and Luke together. They were both assailing him. And then in Luke, it says, well, here's the one that at some point in time, he comes to grips. And on the cross, you see love. In the midst of his own pain, you see love. Paul in love. What does Paul say? In the book of Romans, God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, he did what? We were sinners and ungodly and helpless and enemies. What about Ephesians? We talked about Ephesians and love. This great love displayed by Jesus Christ. And even Paul, remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. It says, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see it in Peter as well. Love displayed. This love that is displayed on the cross and now he says that we love him whom we don't even see. And now that's a motivation for us to love others in chapter 1. What about revelation and love? One of the most powerful statements. Turn to the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation. Chapter 
Revelation chapter 1. And what does it say in verse 5? The message to the seven churches and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Notice us, us, our, his. He intervened. He loves us. For a moment, I wanted to talk about the theological implications of his love, and I had a list of theological terms and how they interface with love. I'll wait until I come back again. Because as I said a week ago, I don't want to rush any of this in your minds. I don't. It'll probably just be one lesson on these theological ideas, uh, things like foreknowledge and providence and election, how it's a display of his love. Even something like a great word, the the aseity of God, the the self-existence of God, how that's an expression of love. But for now, I'll leave you with this thought. Is it any doubt that he loves you? So the question would be, on what basis would I doubt? I mean, there, there is a reasonable time where people may doubt. Say, for instance, if a friend that is constantly late and a simple illustration, say, hey, I'll meet you at um, five o'clock. They've never been on time. (laughs) I doubt that you're going to be there. Um, You've told me certain you made certain promises, but you haven't come through in those promises. And they promise you again. I doubt. (sighs) We'll wait and see is what we say. The question would be, with the living God, what would be your reasonable thinking to doubt him? Hmm. Let's give that, let's pause. What what would it be? I can doubt God because of what? Is is there anything, can you fill in any blank? Is there any way you could say, well, oh no, he does fulfill his every word. It can't be that. What about his timing? Well, this, the scripture says everything is beautiful in his what? Time. So it can't be his timing. Maybe I doubt him because he's, perhaps he's not all powerful. No, it says by the strength of his might. That can't be it. Maybe he doesn't know everything. That's, that's the issue. He just doesn't know it all. He would love to be on my side. He'd love to help me, but he just is not aware. Well, but that won't work because has anyone ever taught me knowledge? There's no reason to doubt. There's no reason to fear. Because Yahweh loves you. Greater love. There's no man than this that he would do what? Lay down his life. And he laid down his life. Father, we thank you for these words you give us. And we would ask that you would... Take them, use them to our benefit and to your glory. Amen.